Well, we are continuing to move our way through the book of Luke, and it seems like to me, maybe to you too, that we have been in chapter six for a long time. Well, we're still in it, and we got some ways to go. So it's, it's dense and it's rich, and so we're taking our time to move through that. So turn with me to Luke chapter 6 this morning, starting with verse 27. 27. I read this week that G.K. Chesterton, many have said he is the most quoted Christian in the history of the world. He says this, we are always looking for loopholes when it comes to the tough commands of Jesus. This morning, our natural bent will be to look for loopholes as Jesus is establishing his foundation or the foundation of his kingdom as he sort of turns our human value system upside down or inverts it or turns it upside uh, on its head. This passage is very uncomfortable. Welcome to church. (laughs) As I dug into this passage and I saw what Jesus is saying versus what I'm inclined to do, I saw a serious gap. And I, I don't say that just for introductory purposes. I saw a serious gap. But I also have seen growth. And so I was both discouraged and encouraged. You ever felt like that at the same time? So, right now I want to encourage you to take just four or five seconds to get as comfortable as you can, okay? Because that's as comfortable as you're going to be the whole morning, all right? The topic is loving those you'd rather hate. Yep, that's what Jesus is addressing this morning. It goes against the natural gain of what often flies through my mind, which is, if it weren't for people, I'd be okay, right? Or put it another way, I'd probably need to say, if it weren't for me, I'd be okay. That's probably the the bigger truth, because I'm a people too. A man was asked on his 100th birthday what he was most proud of about his life. And he replied, I don't have an enemy in the world. And the guy asking said, man, is a reporter interviewing him for his 100th birthday. And the reporter replied, man, that's, that's awesome. And the guy said, yep, I outlived every one of them. <laughs> Another man on the street interview was asked, what did Jesus mean when he said, love your enemies? He thought a minute and he said, I think he probably meant don't kill them, right? So if we can't outlive them, and we sure can't kill them, we need to really look at how Jesus navigates this very difficult topic this morning. And to add to that, we live in these times of this culture of ours where it's just ramped up rage, it seems like all the time in that if someone is offended, they immediately offend back at a a higher level. Reminds me when Josh and Jess were little boys, Jess will remember this well, Jess would tap Josh and Josh would come back with a World War III bat and bust him upside the head, right? It just escalated quickly. Those are the times we live in. 
It will also help us navigate this difference, the difference between being righteously angry in the things God is angry about, in the sense that you and I are called to hate the things that God hates. But at the same time, we're actually called to love the people who promote these sins against God and man. If there's anything more difficult in the human life to navigate, I'm not sure what it is. Can we say amen to that? Yeah. So this passage will help us with that, I think. And when we don't do this well, as Christ followers, what happens is the world looks at us as a bunch of angry, as my dad used to say, mad as a wet hornet about everything and everybody. But we're called to be a people who are full of wisdom and grace and truth. Dr. Daryl Bach, who's a scholar on the book of Luke, put it this way. He said, our culture must know us as truth tellers, but we must be truth tellers with tears. For it is not we who are the victims, but they. They're the ones whose minds are darkened and whose eyes are blinded. So let's read our text this morning, verse 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is it that, that to you? Even sinners <clears throat> lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But I say love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And be merciful even as your Father is merciful. It's a tad overwhelming so the first things we're going to look at are the commands of love, verse 27 and in verse 28. Now, if we go back just a little bit in Luke chapter six, with the beginning of Jesus calling the disciples, we see that Jesus is creating a new kingdom, a kingdom anew, if you would. And then last week, he continues by telling us that his, his followers value something different than people of the world, that there's a different value system, that we are to treasure something differently. And so when circumstances come, Jesus is some way saying that you won't lose your treasure because your treasure is God himself. So what Jesus is trying to do here in Luke 6, he's, he's trying, put it this way, to change our default settings, 
how we just naturally see life, how we just naturally look at life, how we just naturally respond to life. If my default settings on my computers break, I don't know what to do. I just have them there. I have to call Jess. Jess, something's wrong here. But I just have these natural bents in me, and, G and we all do, and Jesus is trying to change those natural default settings. Someone said at this point he has quit preaching and he's done gone to meddling. That's what it feels like as we look at verse 27. So he says, but I say to you who hear, those who have spiritual ears, he's saying, those who can grasp this, those who are tenderhearted, and then he gives us these four commands of what it looks like to love. He says, love your enemies, do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. Really? In our culture, for years, everyone loves to talk about love. Love, love, love. All it takes is love. We love to sing about love. But man, it's a whole nother thing to do love. So, let me first give us a little refresher course, biblically speaking, on love. There are four Greek words for love versus our one English word that we see in the scriptures. The first one is storge, which is a natural affection, uh, like two sisters from the same family. The second one is eros, which is a romantic or sensual love. And then there's phileo, where we get part of our word of Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love. It's a friendship love. And then there's agape, it's a radically different love because agape is not about the attractiveness or the merit of the one we love. That's the word here in verse 27. So we need to identify what kind of word love is being used. So here Jesus is calling for a love for people that is in no way related to the lovability of those we're supposed to love. It is the exact kind of love, think about this, this is where he wants to take us at the end of the day. It's the exact kind of love that God has for us in Christ. His love for us is not based on our merit or our ability to clean up our act. It is a self-engineered love for us who were his enemies, objects of his wrath dead in our sins. And Ephesians tells, you, tells us this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Those words in Ephesians, that's agape love. Jesus uses that here. Agape love though, we got to remember is not blind. Meaning as in we don't see them as they are, our enemies, we see folks exactly as they are in all their wretchedness and are to love them. Agape love is intelligent. It is purposeful. It is the love God gave us to save us. Now he tells us what love looks like. He says, do good to those who hate you. Do good to your enemies. To do good to someone is ultimately to do what is best for them. So we ask the question, what is it that is best for a person who has lied to you, 
cheated on you, oppressed you, abused you, a person who has a pattern or living in such a way as to harm others and ultimately themselves, it is, is it just to let them keep on doing it? Answer is no. Okay. To just let them walk all over you and others? To sin against you and others? Now, we can't make them get it. Like, we're not the Holy Spirit. We can't drive it in their face. No, but we know in other passages, Jesus says, when you have a problem with someone, what does he say? He says, go to them, engage them, have conversations with them, try to persuade them, and hopefully restore them. But Jesus is saying here, we must do it without any desire to get them back, to enact revenge, to punish them. We ultimately ask this question, what is it that I need to do to my enemy to try and gain an opening for the gospel? That's a great question to ask. How can I maneuver this? And here's what I can't do this morning. I can't speak to every scenario that you have. If you'll email me or have a conversation with me, we can try to work out how you, we might apply that. So, we're thinking principally here. What would that look like for me to apply with wisdom and grace the agape love of God has toward me, toward my enemies? I read this week as I was studying about a man who, uh, uh, he had a daughter, been married 20 years to her husband, three kids, and the man has an affair and leaves his spouse and um, the wife and the kids had to move in with the dad. I think the mom had already passed. And uh, one week after the man divorced his wife and left her, he came down with terminal brain cancer. As he was in the hospital, the first person to visit him was the father-in-law to stand over his bed and look for a door to share the gospel with him to be kind to him. That's what Jesus is speaking of here. So, he says, next, bless those who curse you. The idea here is to evoke God's favor on another's behalf to appeal God's mercy for that person. This doesn't exclude the possibility that a harsh warning, though, may Proceed that or may need to be sounded. Remember last week in Luke 6, Jesus said, Woe to those who are rich and full and laugh and are popular now, for that's all they're going to get. In the Sermon on the Mount, Monty mentioned Matthew 5 this morning already. Jesus states the conventional wisdom or sort of the standard approach that the Pharisees had come up with. He says to, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, you Pharisees, you have said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, that's not biblical. They had come up with that. In some ways, the Pharisees actually created a situation where the person could self-determine who their neighbor was and who their enemy was and therefore would have justification for hating their enemy. Saying, if you're not my neighbor... In my own thinking, I can hate you. So what Jesus does, uh, later on, we'll see this in Luke 10, I believe. 
he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the Good Samaritan? The lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus was speaking in similar subjects. So he wants to make sure, who's my neighbor? Then Jesus tells the story of this Jewish man that was robbed, left bloody and battered on the side of the road, and the Levite comes and passes him by, and then the priest comes and passes him by, and who takes care of him? Who heals him? Who takes him to be taken care of? It is the hated Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans, Samaritans hated the Jews, and Jesus tells the story, then he looks back at the fellow and says, so who was the good neighbor? And the Jewish person had to say, the Samaritan. The last thing he wanted to say was what? The Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. It's a great picture to bless those who curse you. And then to pray for those that hate you and the gospel. Here's what this looks like. And I want to be totally human this morning, okay? Because we're all humans. That's one thing we can agree upon. Take the time to engage in an inner discipline. Here's what it means to pray for those who hate you. Where you drain yourself of any ill will toward that person. That's a process. That doesn't happen overnight. That, that means that that. Part of that draining process is, is you being angry and emitting anger and hurt and sadness and aloneness and, and you, are, you are wrestling with God on that or you've pulled one of your dear friends aside and you're saying, I am hurt deeply and you're working through that. And in that process, Psalms are full of that. You are draining yourself of the poison that is killing you. And you pray and you see that person. As you pray this, you see that person with as many needs as you. You get yourself to a point that you see that person as broken as you. And if not for the grace of God in your life, you would be as hurtful to others as they are. Or this is the beautiful place that God would bring you to a place during this praying, draining process that you see that you have been as hurtful as they are. This week as I studied, there were flashes of memories coming up in my head how I've responded antithetically to this text. When I see me and you see you, that you have done just the same thing to others that they've done to you, we're in a great place to pray for those who hate you. If you're praying in this way, here's what Jesus will do. He will forbid you to think of yourself as superior to others. Now, I just want to take a side note here. I want to step away from the text because, and I want to talk about your spouse. Because one of the things we teach at Family Life over and over and over 
Every time is your spouse is not your enemy. That we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities in the darkness. And so our spouses, though, because they're closest to us and we see their stuff and they see our stuff, they can really feel like our enemy here. That was an exclamation point on my point. <laughs> yes, they do. That's what it said. One of the great things that can happen in your marriage is that you see yourself just as sinful as your spouse. You're co-equal in sinfulness. Now, back to the text. Think about how Jesus prayed for those who hated him. Luke 23, he hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen in Acts 7, he was stoned to death. And the heavens opened up, and he's about to see Jesus eyeball to eyeball. He prays, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Corey Tim Boone puts it this way. Corey Tim Boone, who was in the Nazi concentration camps for years, writes, this kind of love may see nothing attractive in the one loved. Its goal, whether the object is worth it or worth or not, is to bestow these blessings upon the one loved and to do him the highest possible good. So, it would be nice if this sermon was over now and we could just move forward, but we can't because what, what Luke does, he goes into the reactions of love in verse 29 through 32. So here we have four reactions of love. He says those reactions are when we, we're supposed to turn the cheek when we get hit. Someone takes your shirt, give him your coat too. If you're robbed, let him have your stuff. And then the golden rule, which says do to others what you wish they would do to you. Now we can tend to think this means if someone hits me and I'm still breathing, we turn another cheek and say, take another shot, big fella. You didn't knock me down, right? Or we can think it means we can't go to war or we got to be a pacifist. Or if someone steals my car, I go and try to find him, not to get my car back, but to give him my other car, right? So we, we got to unpack that a little bit. Jesus is not calling us to live a life without boundaries. We're not speaking here of someone who is being physically abused in a relationship. We're not speaking here of someone who is being sexually abused. God gave us reactions for our personal protections. It's a personal ethic here. It's not governmental. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, what he says, he gave the government to protect the people. It means war, though tragic, is sometimes justified. So I want to summarize Dr. Daryl Bach again, the scholar, maybe the world's foremost scholar on Luke, puts it this way. The point here is that biblical love involves accepting wrongs committed against one by being willing to forgive and is willing to turn around a second time and still offer help. Love is available. 
vulnerable and subject to be taken advantage of. Revenge is excluded while doing good to the hostile person is commanded. The context here is persecution because they are Christ followers. And in this context, it means continuing to minister at the risk of further persecution as Paul does in Acts 14. Now, what happens in Acts 14? Paul was stoned in Antioch. He dragged out of the city and left for dead. They thought he was dead. Read the text. And then it says Paul got up. <laughs> they came to him. I guess put some Band-Aids on him, put some smelling salts on him, cleaned his wounds. And Paul got up, left the city, but shortly returned afterwards to strengthen the soul's of the disciples. And it says in the text that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So that was Paul's reaction to love. Then it talks about turning the other cheek here. That was a way to shame and humiliate someone in the Middle Eastern culture. Because in the Middle Eastern culture, the way you greeted someone, the way you said, I want to be your friend, is you would turn your cheek and they would kiss you in each side of your cheek. So the way you humiliate someone and shame someone would be the opposite. You would slap them with the back of your hand. And in John 16, when a person came to Christ, we see this, they would take them to the front of the synagogue. And you got to remember for a Jew, this is the core of their life, the synagogue. Take them to the front of the synagogue and they would slap them and throw them out of the synagogue. So you're talking about shame and humiliation in front of all their friends, in front of all the people they knew in terms of their life. And now they are alone. And the only people they had were fellow Christians who had come to Christ. So there was no church hopping back in the day. You know what I mean? That's it. John 18 we see another picture of this here. Jesus is before the high priest after his arrest, after he's arrested and he's being questioned about his teaching. Jesus says this, look, why are you, why are you questioning me? You've been to everything I've taught. You've all followed me around like a bunch of bees following honey. You've heard what I've said. Everyone's heard what I said. So why do you ask? says one of the officers slapped him in the face because he knew it was a rebuke of the high priest's question. What did Jesus do? Did he turn his other cheek? He said, take another shot, big fella. No. No, what Jesus did, so you got to take the little, literalness. Did I say that? We're not being literal here. What Jesus did was, he said, Look, what I said was true and right, so why did you hit me? Jesus was willing to take the shame and humiliation and at the same time not change his message, not back down one bit. It gives us a picture. And then in verse 30, he says to give everyone who begs from you. This is not a professional beggar. This is not a con man. This is speaking of lending. This is a person who has a real need. And we'll see that later as Jesus sort of uh, uh, summarizes his points. 
This person has a real need is a situation of lending money or something to someone who will take advantage of your generosity. Have you ever given money to someone and they'll say, we'll pay you right back, right? Okay, and they don't. What do you do? Everybody's nodding their head, yeah. Or, Or someone has a real need. They are poor. They have a real need. And then you find out later their need is not like they said. They've been lying to you all along. What do you do? Jesus says you give it to them. If they don't pay you back, don't try to get revenge. It's antithetical here. It's antithetical to how the world operates. Now here's the deal. Wisdom tells us we may not loan that person money again, right? We can say no. Or we may choose to do so. Depends on how much money you have, right? But there's no revenge here. Here's how one writer, I love how he sums this up. He says, love is not fostering crime in others or to expose our loved ones to disaster or death. Selfless love is the wisdom which applies love. And that's why I'm trying to get us to apply this to each situation. Christ never told us to not restrain the murderer's hand, not to keep in check the thief or robber, not to oppose the tyrant who abuses all in his presence, but he did tell me to love my enemies. Each of us, under the Holy Spirit's guidance, must work at what does that look like in this particular situation. And then I love what Jesus does next. But because you can, you can hear those two big points and you can just feel overwhelmed. You can just think, there's no way I can do that. Love it. Thank you very much. I want you to look who it is. Good. So Jesus now talks about the power to do this. When we think about this, I think what most of us do when we are wronged by someone, we do one or two things. We say, one, I'm going to get them back, Jack. Two, we say, just forget it. I'm not going to say anything. We need to understand both of these are selfish because they're all about us, all about our comfort, what we are most comfortable in doing. And what Jesus does in verse 32 through 34, he basically says, don't try to love someone the way you may naturally think about love, the way that's most comfortable to you. The most comfortable thing for us to do, Jesus is saying, is to love someone who what? Loves us. To do good to someone who does good good to us. To lend money to someone who will later lend to us. Jesus says, heck, even sinners do that. Now, when he uses this word sinner here, he uses this as a unique use here. Because he's using it in the sense that it's referring to people over there. Those people who are bad. Those people who do not do what they should do. And that is why the world is going to heck in a handbasket. You know those bad sinners over there. To the religious people, those sinners are the atheists. 
To the Republicans, those sinners are the Democrats. To the Democrats, those sinners are the Republicans. He's using sinner like everyone else would, would use it. Those sinners, those bad people over there that just ruin our world. And then verse 35b, he says, but you, speaking to his followers, you are to be like sons of the most high. Now I would imagine if we didn't have the text and someone said, what's he going to say next? I would imagine what is it we think he's going to say next. He would say, because he has given his saving mercy to the kind and grateful. No. He actually says to us, his followers, for God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. So he says, those sinners over there, you know, all those bad people, but for you who are ungrateful and evil, he calls us worse than those bad people over there. He says, you, my followers who are, were ungrateful, and evil, worse than a generic sinner, you being ungrateful and evil, and how did God treat you? That's what he's asking here. That's what he's saying here. He made you sons and daughters of the Most High. He was kind to you in the midst of your ungratefulness and evilness. And he showed you mercy by allowing you to know his son. Christianity. Think about this. Christianity is the only religion in the world where we are both evil and righteous. Where we are both bad and a child of the most high both sinful and love. There's nothing like it in the world. The gospel says that you and I are both. So here's what changes everything. That you and I start to internalize the truth that we are ungrateful and evil, yet but God was merciful to us. The, the way Jesus changes our default settings about how we love is that we see ourselves the way he sees us, ungrateful and evil, and yet he loved us in such a way that he makes us lovable and able to love others. We miss the whole point this morning. If we look at this text as this list of things, I've got to go love these people and pray for these people and bless these people and do all these things to these people and turn my cheek and get my coat back. And I, I mean, that's overwhelming. That's like torment. That's like puts us as I just can't be a Christian. No, we, we missed the point. There's certainly things to do. But Jesus summarizes it all here. Do to them what I did to you and for you. You do to your enemies what I did to you and for you because you were my enemy. But that's impossible to do if in some twisted way we see ourselves as superior to others. 
Then I love what he says at the end. He says, child, be like your father. Prove who your parent is by the way you love other people. When we react to people based on the information we know about them versus what we know about how God reacted toward us, we don't treat people as fellow image bearers, broken image bearers, and therefore we fail to love them. Someone said, if our eyes ever see and our ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of ourselves, then we can see the sin, weakness, and failures of others. And in doing so, we can be a God-empowered tool of his rescue and help for that person. This is why the gospel is breathtaking. It is why the gospel is stunning. I want to give you five areas this morning of application Okay, five specific errors for you to apply, and then I'm going to give you a so what. Okay, the first one is with your spouse. These principles, although your spouse is not your enemy, they feel like it sometimes, right? They feel like they're out to get you. Like this is the this is the first circle here, folks. You won't be able to do it to others if you can't do it to your spouse first. Then your children, then your friends, and those in your community group. Think about community group. This is why it's so difficult. Jesus draws together those who would not naturally hang together. Say amen if you're in a community group, right? Why church and your small group might feel very unnatural. So Jesus is saying here, love is just not a feeling. Love is hard work. And then you got your actual enemies. And then, okay, eyes on me. I know I ain't pretty to look at, but I want you to hear me. Apply this to social media. Be gracious and kind with the most vile sinners that promote everything under the sun that God hates. Because, but by the grace of God, those go your thoughts and words too. So take a moment this morning to ask the question, so what? And as we did last week, I love this, this new so what. It gives us some great categories there uh, to apply. Pick one of those. Is there sin to confess, promise to claim, an attitude to change, et cetera, et cetera? Take a minute and ask the question, so what?